So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty. World's energy. biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Special. Hello and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. Today we have California on our minds and Kate Gordon in our studio. Kate is the director of the California Governor's Office of Planning and Research, and she serves as a senior advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom on climate. She's also a co-author of the fourth National Climate Assessments chapter on adaptation, and she oversaw the Risky Business Project for the Henry M. Paulson Institute, which quantified the impacts of climate change on the U.S. economy. Welcome to Chicago, Kate. Thank you so much. So some of us, many of us, live in states that don't have a governor's office of planning and research. <laughs> so maybe you could start by telling us just briefly what the office does. I think we're the only one, actually. Um, I haven't looked into this, but we might be. Um, so the Office of Planning and Research, or OPR as we call it, is uh, statutorily required to do long-range planning for the governor and cabinet. So that can mean a huge number of things. Traditionally, what it's meant is a big focus on land use and the intersection of land use and climate. So we oversee state general plans, including their climate plan action plans. We look at CEQA, which is the California Environmental Quality Act, and do those guidelines. And then recently and importantly, we're doing a lot of work on wildfires, which is obviously an intersection, um, and on housing as well. So where are those places where our climate goals as a state or our environmental goals as a state intersect with how we um, plan over the long term? So it seems poignant that this office in California is now led by someone with particular expertise in climate adaptation. Thank you. I'm also a planner. Many yeah. people don't know that, but <laughs> that it's helps true. too, I'm sure. <laughs> I'd like to read something you wrote recently. So, quote, adaptation and resilience are front and center now. Somewhere in our state, California experiences every single impact of climate change you can think of. We are seeing those impacts come to bear not only with the fires, but also with the impacts to roads from extreme conditions in the San Joaquin Valley and the Inland Empire. We're seeing a rise in the use of air conditioning, which is leading to a huge demand push on our electricity system at the same time that vehicle electrification is also adding demand to the system, and at the same time that a sea change is happening in our utility sector. My question for you is, if you feel that we're at the cusp of these impacts or already immersed in them, um, in other words, have we missed opportunities for adaptation already or have we just missed opportunities for mitigation? I think both. Actually, California is very good on mitigation. I mean, the place where we've really led, frankly, and Governor Brown was a true global leader on this, um, Governor Jerry Brown, is on uh, reducing impacts, particularly in electricity. So we've been really good on setting high goals on greening our electricity sector, carbon neutrality by 2045, 100% clean energy, 
goals and done a great job there. Where we have not done as well, we need to do better in California, is really on this adaptation resilience side. And we've certainly missed opportunities. I mean, the fact about resilience is that every day that we make a decision as a state, or frankly, as individuals or businesses, to invest in something that has a long lifespan, that isn't the most efficient, most resilient, you know, lowest carbon thing, then that's a missed opportunity. So we basically feel like we need to get ahead of that the way we've gotten ahead of mitigation. Okay, I want to disclose that I'm a Californian too. Are you? I am. I lived in California for 15 years in Merced, San Francisco, and San Luis Obispo. And when I came to Chicago, I came here for graduate school, and my plan was to go back, but that was 18 years ago. (laughs) Part of the reason that I haven't returned is that I really do love Chicago, but another one is that it really seems daunting to return to California because of the cost of housing. And um, if I could read something from the California Legislative Analyst's Office, Quote, housing in California has been more expensive than most of the rest of the country for a long time. Beginning in about 1970, however, the gap between California's home prices and those in the rest of the country started to widen. Between 1970 and 1980, California home prices went from 30% above U.S. levels to more than 80% higher. This trend has continued. Today, an average California home costs $440,000 about two and a half times the average national home price. And also, California's average monthly rent is about $1,240, 50% higher than the rest of the country. So I think a lot of people know this about California, but what they might, may not realize that I've heard you speak about before is that there's a link between the cost of housing in California and the impacts of climate change. Uh, tell us about that. What's the connection? Sure. I mean, I I should first say that I'm originally from Madison, Wisconsin, so this is my area, and I always thought I would come back here because I love the Midwest. So, And then I married a Californian, and the rest is history. So (laughs) you and I switched places. Um, The wildfires have really brought home the link between climate impacts the cost of and the cost of housing in California, and actually, frankly, climate impacts the cost of housing and the the economic impact of climate change. What we have in California is this moment of climate change making wildfires more frequent and extreme, combined with more and more people moving into what we call the wildland urban interface, which is basically the high-risk fire areas of the state, the places that are kind of in between the forest land and urban areas. More and more people moving into those areas because they're some of the last affordable parts of the state, and people are commuting from them or moving to them when they retire and are on fixed incomes. So that combination of more severe and frequent fires, more people in these areas, and when you bring more people into these areas, we then require those people to be served by our utilities. So that means more um, transmission lines in these areas as well. And that three-part thing is a big reason why the fires have been so devastating, honestly. The most destructive fires in California are utility-caused, and the fires we've had recently have been not only utility-caused, but also many people have died. So we're really seeing this kind of moment. Um, and I think it's 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 important moment and it's really uh, causing Californians to think differently about climate change in some ways and adaptation because it's bringing home the affordability crisis as a climate crisis. But we're also, I'm sure people know this, we're also seeing the impacts, the fiscal impacts of this on our biggest utility, PG&E, which filed for bankruptcy because of the cost of the liability of all these fires. 
and their ratings agencies, S&P and Moody's, have downgraded PG&E to junk status for that reason, and our other two big utilities, they've been downgraded to just above that. So this isn't just a, this isn't just a problem for the people living in these areas, and it isn't just a problem of sort of the overall housing crisis. It's actually affecting California's ability to raise money, to borrow money, to build new infrastructure. Ratepayers across the state are paying for this. People aren't getting insured. It's really kind of coming home all at once. So um, California is offering incentives. One of the ways that the state is combating this problem is by offering incentives for cities that do a good job of increasing housing. What does it mean for a city to increase housing well? What's a good job look like as opposed to a poor one? That's a great question. We are in this administration really, really trying to help with this problem. We see, and we talk about this a lot, the the issue is not just can we help people have the option not to live in really high-risk areas, but in order to do that, we really do have to increase density in existing areas that already have infrastructure, frankly, and already are built out. That means mostly a focus on building near housing near jobs and transit. That's really how we think about it. So the one side of the coin is, how do we build near jobs and transit? Some people call that infill, but it's kind of beyond infill. It's not just filling in existing residential areas. It's really that jobs connection, too, because we don't want people doing the two and two and a half, three-hour drives that they're doing right now to get to their jobs. So for us, that means um, at a state level, which is where I have to focus, where do we expect to see the most population growth? A lot of that's going to be in the Central Valley, not in the coasts. How do we start looking at those cities, Merced, where you have lived, Fresno, Bakersfield, building out those existing urban areas, and also filling in San Francisco, LA, where we can? We're trying to provide incentives in the budget, for instance, through a big increase in the infill infrastructure fund, which allows cities to, to get help from the state in making the infrastructure better where there's a bunch of single family homes near transit. We'll help them increase broadband, increase water services, increase sewer, whatever, to be able to build up to three or four stories. That's a huge goal for us. It's a challenging goal at the state level because we don't have control over local zoning. And so we're constantly working with the carrots and sticks that we have. So the plan is to get as many people out of their cars as you can by making transit convenient for them. And then those that you can't to change the kinds of cars that they drive. I, well, I think it's exactly right. It's, it's, and I should have said the other side of the coin, infill or housing near jobs and transit is one side of the coin. Frankly, conservation is the other side. We're also investing in like valuable agricultural land conservation, forest conservation, and wetlands conservation because those are climate resilient activities that also provide a buffer between fire zones and cities and that also are really important for sort of the overall development of the state. So we're kind of doing both. That is a big piece of the puzzle, this land use piece. It's the piece California has not done particularly well. Our transportation emissions are 51% of our overall emissions picture. And most of that is from people driving alone because of land use patterns. But the other piece of it, as you just said, is what are they driving, right? So we've done a very good job in California of providing rebates and incentives for um, folks to buy electric cars, including specific incentives for people to get rid of older cars, trade them in and get electric cars. Um, you get higher incentive the more clean the replacement car is and also the lower your income is. Um, that's incredibly important. We have 600,000 EVs on the road in California right now. However, that's out of 26 million cars. 
that we have on the road. Um, so we're struggling mightily with this. We also know from our Air Resources Board that even if we were to increase our electric vehicles 10 times in California, we would have to reduce our, what they call vehicle miles traveled or how much people drive by 25% to meet our goals. So even with the EV increase, we still have got to deal with the land use thing. It's not either or. So something that, that may make that even more challenging is that your population's not static. The population of California continues to grow. It I, does. I've heard 50 million people by 2050. That's the projections that we've seen are pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. And is it, it's about 40 million now? It's a little under. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how much of a burden does the growing population add to, the, to these tasks? It, you know, honestly, it depends on how we do it. If we prioritize sustainable, inclusive growth in California, and we really look at not just how is that watching that growth and managing it, but really saying, let's direct it a little bit better. Let's really think about not putting people in high risk areas. Let's really think about existing infrastructure and kind of helping cities build out existing infrastructure, helping the Central Valley build out into some real cities. It's been, they've been bypassed for years. This is historical, right? I mean, the, the, the Eisenhower Highway Plan built Highway 5 deliberately passed all of those cities. None of them go through, the highway doesn't go through any of them. So people drive from San Francisco to LA without ever stopping. Um, Things like the high-speed rail plan, the goal is to put stations right downtown in those areas. Uh, So we'll build up those downtowns. So can we manage the growth with the existing infrastructure and cities we have? Yes. Our big fear is it's unmanaged growth that just contributes to the problems that I've been talking about. Now, at the same time, this this work uh, that you're doing um, has to be resilient in a changing climate. You've spoken eloquently about building a climate-resilient California. You've said it's the framework of the state, which I think is an interesting statement. And I want to ask you what that looks like in specific terms, if we could talk, kind of go through a few sectors. Sure. It, it, it depends on um, both region and sector. So one of the interesting things about climate change is that it's an as you know, is an extremely, it's a global issue. It's an existential global crisis, but both the impacts and the solutions are very local conversations. Um, They depend on, you know, uh, particular climate conditions, particular workforce assets, a bunch of things. In California, as I've said, we have all of those impacts. So let's look at um, different regions. The forested north part of the state is where we're seeing a lot of the wildfires. So we have this need to really think about, frankly, deprioritizing a lot more growth in those areas, but also doing forest management in a way that keeps the forest healthy, able to sequester carbon, uh, and also those areas more, um, more safe in terms of wildfire. So that's a forested north strategy. In um, the Central Valley, which, as I've said, I think we're going to see a lot of growth, there is an issue with heat. So we're going to see extreme heat impacts increase if we do nothing about climate change globally those impacts will increase pretty dramatically over the next few decades we will have to manage for that i will say extreme heat is one of the impacts we can actually reverse through really good climate action so i'm very optimistic about it i think we can bring the curve down but we need to think about things like building um in a smart way sustainable way we need to think about uh air conditioning again as a demand issue um how we Cool roofs, um, doing tree canopy is a really important thing in the Central Valley, so you don't have wide expanses of concrete with urban heat island. So that kind of building is a resilient strategy. Um, 
And then looking at the coastlines, of course, sea level rise uh, and mudslides are both real issues in California. So how do we think about managing growth in some of the communities where we do expect to see pretty extreme sea level rise on the, in the nearer term? How are we more resilient there? How do we think about uh, moving uh, road infrastructure if a mudslide ruins a road? How do we think about moving it in a little bit? How do we, re how do we rebuild higher? All of those things. So it kind of depends on where you're talking about yeah. um, and you know what the, what the current assets are that are on the ground and how do we build them better. When I think about sea level rise, I think about the area where the bay meets the San Joaquin River, mm -hmm. um, Stockton, Lodi around yep. there, all very low-lying. Yep. Well, the whole delta um, yeah. is, is very low-lying. You also get particular impacts in the Bay Area where we have a lot of landfill. So all of, um, or a lot of Redwood City is actually landfill, Redwood Shores down there, which is a big part of Silicon Valley. So there's a lot of work being done, and I, I really think this is important for places to do um, work being done that's very granular on climate impact. So how do we look at those, not at a very high sort of what's going to happen in California, what's going to happen on the West Coast, but in, you know, um, Sacramento, in Kern County, in uh, uh, Stanislaus, what, are, what kind of impacts do we expect to see? What are the existing assets on the ground? What are people's commute patterns? How are we going to start planning forward for, you know, capital stock turnover when we have to replace the wastewater treatment plant? Um, that's a pretty specific planning and finance strategy. And I think it's, it's interesting because in some ways we're at this moment where climate change is shifting from an environmental issue to really an economic issue, which is where I've always come to it. But I think it's, we're starting to sort of see that globally. While we're on that topic, um, there's a way that economics can motivate action, right? Differently than, than other forms of politics can. Could you speak about that? Yeah, I mean, I... Um, come from, as I said, I have a planning degree, so I'm a planner and a lawyer from, from Berkeley. And um, I, so I've kind of come to this from a regional economic development perspective for a long time. And I've long felt that economics is a way to reach people that you can't always reach people through environmental um, messaging. And one of the big ways that I've done that in my career was through the Risky Business Project, which really focused on bringing economic messengers. We had Hank Paulson and Mike Bloomberg and Tom Steyer when he was still at Farallon Capital co-chair that project. So bringing economic messengers with this very granular approach to climate impacts by sector and by region. So what happens to crop yields in the Midwest, right? What happens to energy demand in the Southwest? Um, bringing that message to investors and business people in a way that speaks that language. So we put the whole thing in the language of business risk. You know, we called our, our advisory committee a risk committee. The entire language of the project was in terms of risk profiles of these different regions and sectors, very much in the language of how, for instance, Goldman Sachs uses their risk committee. Um, and I think that's necessary because it, it isn't that it's a better way to talk about it, but it brings an entire new set of allies to the table. And those allies are important because they make a lot of decisions that are very meaningful. Um, they are the Treasury departments, the ministers of you know, finance. They're the uh, city managers in particular places. They're the um, you know, business, the CEOs or the CIOs who are making that, or COOs making that actual business decision that's putting money on the table and putting steel on the ground. And so that's kind of where we were aiming with that. And I think that's been very effective. 
I wonder uh, if you think that could also be effective, not only with businesses, but with individuals. Um, I'm thinking about in, in the state of Washington, they had a carbon tax on the ballot, and it went down largely because of eastern rural counties voting against it in Washington. Is there a way to make that economic appeal to the people who live in those areas that could change their vote? I think so. I think the Washington example had a lot going on. I mean, yeah. I think there was a lot of oil and gas money that went in to fight that initiative. Right. Um, so there was a political side to it, and that's obviously a challenge. We have, on the when it comes down to simple economics, we have a very entrenched set of industries that still makes a lot of money that is on the side of not changing this stuff. And so that's a tough thing to deal with, right? So that happened. I do also think, though, that that coalition building could have focused more and earlier on Eastern Washington. And I'd point to Oregon as an example of a way that it's been done a little differently and I think a little more effectively. Governor Kate Brown in Oregon has spent a year or more building out legislative work groups in, across Oregon, including a major focus on Eastern Oregon, on ranchers and farmers in particular, and really looked at engaging them from the beginning on where would they see value from a, from a price on carbon? How can you think about you know, uh, farms, uh, soil sequestering carbon or trees sequestering carbon and taking it out of the atmosphere, and how do you value that? How can we think about wood products industry and the potential for building more you know, clean and sustainable buildings to replace concrete with cross-laminated timber and other wood? What does that mean for Oregon's wood products industry? So she's been really thoughtful, actually, and there are people who will say, that Oregon, they're about to pass a cap and trade bill, so I think this will happen. And there are people who will say that it's not as strong as it should be, but I would argue Oregon's not California, but it's a lot more like a lot of other states. And so I think we should look carefully at that strategy because I think it's been effective. Do you feel like that strategy um, is needed in California as well, or do you feel like a lot of that work has already been done in California? California has been very good on a lot of pieces of this puzzle. The two areas I'd say we've really led on have been setting strong goals um, and on the technology side because we make a lot of money on the technology. I mean, to be honest, it's another economic argument. We have a very, very strong, powerful solar industry in California. We have a very strong, powerful electric vehicle industry in California. We've, companies have built the technology. Silicon Valley has capitalized. We've made a lot of money. That works really well um, at, the, at the outset of a climate strategy. Where we are now, absolutely, we have to bring in more people. We're now at a place where we have a statewide set of issues where we're not doing as well and we need to do better. That's land use, as I said. It's also industry and agriculture. So those are not areas that are the traditional kind of environmental or coastal constituents. One of the challenges for California and something the governor's really focused on is um, he, is that our legislature is is extraordinarily urban and coastal because that's our population base, right? And so the governor feels a responsibility and we feel as an administration a responsibility to be there for all of California, to support all Californians. We have a very deliberate focus on inland California um, and on rural California because we don't feel like it's as covered by the legislature as other as the coasts. And it's where a lot of these decisions are being made about what resources to mine, what foods to grow, how to manage land, how to manage water. 
And um, honestly, it's where most of the growth will be in the future. So we're very focused on it. That brings me back to the point that you made about California being so regional or, you know, you having, having to consider these things in, in regional way. Well, and it reminds me that when I lived in California, there was a tourism campaign that referred to the state as the Californias mm. because there's so, there are so many different regions and ecosystems, coasts, forests, um, mountains, deserts, marshes, valleys that are filled with farmland and communities in all of them. Um, at the state level, that has to be challenging when you're designing policies statewide and you have so many different regions with, with their own challenges and their own needs. Maybe this is a good question for a planner. How do yeah, you, it's, it is a good question. There, there are many, many different attempts to define the regions of California. If you start looking into what are the regions, you'll find multiple different definitions because people do it depending on all the things you just said, right? Um, there's either seven or nine usually, depending on who you talk to. Um, but they really are different. And so what we've done, the governor talks a lot about the need for regions to rise together. So acknowledging that we're one state and that all of the regions contribute to the state in different ways. One of the interesting things about California is that although a lot of economic activity and people are in the coastal cities, most of our resources are not. So the water is coming from the north, right? All the way through the rest of the state, we depend on the snowpack in the north. Um, the food is all coming from the Central Valley. Whatever you may think about it, we're still quite dependent on gas and oil, which is coming from down in Kern County, southern inland. Um, and LA County has a lot of oil and gas too, actually. So we have all these different resources and all these different um, kind of flows across the state. And so the governor has said, you know, we need to make sure the regions are all rising together because we're interdependent. And that's a strategy we've been taking by essentially taking state policy and trying to regionalize it, trying to take kind of a block grant approach and then to break it up so that different regions have the ability at the regional level to decide how to spend differently depending on their needs. A good example of that is something that's in the current budget, which is a um, high road training partnership. It's sort of workforce training piece of our greenhouse gas initiative. It's essentially taking a regional approach to training, creating and giving money to create partnerships of employers, workers, economic development, workforce development folks at the regional level to figure out what they actually have as growth industries and what their workforce looks like and develop strategies around that. So we're at the state saying, we're empowering you. We're setting a framework. We want high road jobs, which is like decent jobs, inclusiveness, meet our climate goals, but we're giving you the power at the regional level to figure out what that is. So you're doing all of this exciting work, progressive work in California, but also having to deal with a federal government that has a very different attitude toward these issues and seems to be in some instances even trying to throw a monkey wrench into what California's doing. I'm, you know, undermining automobile fuel economy standards and withdrawing support for high-speed rail, for example. What I'm curious about is whether this is a source of frustration or if it's also a source of inspiration. Um, does it make planning a challenge that California is yoked to a federal government that's at times so regressive or does it encourage a kind of independent incentive in the state? I would say it does both. I mean, we are no um, stranger to conflict with the federal government at this point. I think we've sued the Trump administration 51 times. So 
we are very active in pushing back against the federal government because we feel that we're being held back and that people are being hurt by the, the policies that the, that the administration is putting in place. Not only the two that you just talked about, the, the car standard, which if the, if the vehicle efficiency standards are rolled back, we're going to see increased air pollution in our Central Valley. We're going to see increased asthma. We're going to see health impacts besides the greenhouse gas impacts. It's a, it's a serious issue. Um, high-speed rail, incredibly frustrating to have that taken back. That was a contractual obligation from the federal government. It's essentially them breaking a contract. But even more, I mean, the, the Trump administration recently uh, threatened to take away our emergency services money and spend it on the building the wall. And this is in the context of people without homes still after the fire in paradise. We still don't have FEMA trailers for some of those people. So this is a real thing affecting real people. So I would say it fires us up for sure um, and uh, makes us want to do even more. The context in which it's really frustrating, honestly, is the global climate conversation. Because at the end of the day, when we talk about emissions, we need to talk about them at a global level. California is 1% of global emissions. We need to have a global agreement on addressing climate change. And the current global structure doesn't allow California to participate. The current global structure is a nation-based structure. And the assumption coming out of the Paris Agreement was that nations would enable their states and cities to meet these goals. Our federal government is disabling us from meeting these goals. So that's a place where we do have frustration that we don't fit well into that UN structure. And it's something we talk about a lot because we just think we've got to keep doing what we're doing and doing it well. And we need to have a way that folks who are not at the national level can work together to really um, meet our climate goals. We just have a couple of minutes left, but I want to give you an opportunity to talk about anything else that uh, is happening in California that you're excited about. What's around the corner? I'm excited about a lot of things. I have to say that my tenure has been really characterized by wildfires. <laughs> so uh, I started my job on January 22nd, and the whole administration was sort of taken over by fires and the PG&E bankruptcy very early. Um, and so it's hard to get out of that. We just... Last Friday, my team at the Office of Planning and Research managed and staffed the Catastrophic Wildfire Commission to try to understand how to solve the wildfire utility issue that I talked about. And um, so it's really top of mind still. It's hard for me to get out of it. Um, but I am excited that about this regional question, honestly. I think California has been a state of extreme local control for a long time, particularly over land use. But cities are starting to recognize that these issues are bigger than the cities. People commute from beyond city boundaries. The wildfires do not respect city boundaries. High-speed rail is a regional project by definition. You know, how are we starting to look at these solutions that are actually responding to the real ecosystems and needs of these different regions and getting a little bit outside of this very parochial municipal system? That's exciting to me because I think... There's a lot of opportunity, and I think it's really um, cities are actually starting to kind of buy into it because some of these issues are just bigger than the cities. Most of them are bigger than the cities, and we as a state want to be there to support local government in coming up with great solutions, um, and we want to be there to try to you know move this climate ball forward, and, and we're just excited that there's new options on the table that I think weren't there a couple years ago. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kate. 
You're welcome. It was fun. And thanks to all of you who are listening. Remember to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.